You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes is our guest today, and uh, this is a really great way to finish the quarter because for Elizabeth, in a way, this is kind of like coming home. Elizabeth was uh, at Stanford uh, earlier in her career. Um, she had the um, audacity to, to step out into the real world and form a company called uh, Theranos, which was based partly on her own research, but more, more specifically on her passion for, and you can hear this in the name of the company, Theranos, the fusion of therapy and diagnosis or the monitoring of the therapeutic process in, in, everyday, uh, in, in patients' everyday lives. And so we're hope, hopeful to hear a lot about that and what got you started in the company. Um, so please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Holmes to Stanford. Well, it's really great to be here. I used to sit in these classes, so it's wonderful to be able to speak at one and and I couldn't agree more that they're a wonderful forum for listening to people who have successfully built companies and, and building those relationships. I'd like to use most of the time today to answer your questions, as that's probably the most productive way uh, to get uh, good use for you out of this meeting. But I'll give you a little bit of background on me and Theranos. And then we can uh, open it up to questions from there. Um, I dropped out of Stanford. I, I don't know if I should be recommending that or not, but uh, it was uh, in my sophomore year. I was, I was a chemical engineer, doing a little bit in electrical engineering, and um, had the idea uh, to begin exploring the integration of biological systems with information technology systems and uh, specifically to be able to integrate those two sets of technology in such a way that we could develop what we now call a healthcare system, which is a platform for being able to extract actionable information from a blood test to make better medical decisions earlier than possible using the conventional infrastructure. Um, at the time that I dropped out of Stanford, I had very little idea exactly how we were going to do this, but uh, that came uh, through the process of finding uh, good people to work with and uh, build this company. and. At the uh, encouragement of Channing Robertson, who is here in this audience, who was uh, my mentor uh, at Stanford, um, I ended up leaving. And we've been able to build a company <laughs> around. Uh, we've been able to build a company around um, a home healthcare monitoring system that allows for patients in the context of their home to monitor their blood um, in real time, get analysis of not just the standard types of blood tests that are offered through the conventional infrastructure, but also protein analysis in the point of care. And in doing so, begin to profile disease progression in a way in which no other company um, or organization has been able to do because the technology to monitor 
the blood as comprehensively as we can did not exist. And a technology like this obviously has many applications. We have focused on a niche in the total available market, if you will, which is pharmaceutical clinical trials where we can use our technology to very rapidly identify um, the efficacy and safety of a drug for a pharmaceutical company and do so far faster than is possible using the conventional testing infrastructure, which is the foundation for being able to change uh, the way in which pharmaceutical companies develop their drugs by virtue of the fact that um, we can accelerate the clinical trial timeframes dramatically and in doing so um, not only leverage the ability to get earlier insight to change the development process in terms of allowing adaptive development in the clinical trial environment, but also change the economics around clinical trials by virtue of the fact that not as much time and as many patients are required to run a clinical trial. And ultimately, we've developed a platform which can be used in combination with drugs to be able to improve the risk-benefit profile of a drug to patients by being able to do what we branded ourselves around in, in the name Theranos, which is drug systems monitoring, where when you give someone a drug, you can poke their finger and see whether it works, whether it's safe, and um, uh, whether they have the right dose. So our company is built around home healthcare monitoring systems, the ability to take a finger stick of blood uh, and read it in real time in the home. And um, we have a platform around which uh, we could really transform the way in which people think about managing patients because higher integrity blood information faster results in a more comprehensive understanding of disease progression and that more comprehensive understanding results in the ability to uh, identify better interventions and uh, ultimately delay the progression of disease. So um, I went through the process in leaving Stanford of raising money and um, building a team building a team being the most uh, fundamental piece of uh, what we do. Um, this company is only as good as its people, and, and we've been fortunate to identify really good uh, technology leadership from a number of different disciplines. One of the things that's unique and was challenging about building our organization is that there's so many different technologies that we integrate into this home lab, if you will, that we had to pull chemists and software engineers and biomathematicians and get them to all work together in a constructive way, which uh, is not as simple as you might think. Um, and uh, we also had to pick people who were uh, the kind of investors who could really share our long-term vision. I was fortunate to find those people. And um, in my mind, the most important thing in, in starting a new company is to be able to find people who can stand by you 
to achieve the ultimate goal with building the business, there's a lot of companies that are set up to um, uh, be acquired or to fill a short-term need in, in the market. Our company is set up to define a new industry. And um, if there's anything uh, in terms of the messages that I could bring to this meeting, it's the people that you choose to work with absolutely determine the success or failure of the companies uh, that you may start. So let me pause there, and I'd, I'd love to start a dialogue with you and talk about the things that you're most interested in talking about here. Yes? Um, where do you find the people you're working with, and who are they? Were they your age? No. Have you ever before? Most of them are older than I am, significantly. Um, I, uh, I, I found the people that, that we're working with through, originally, people that I knew from Stanford. And um, uh, there's obviously a phenomenal network here uh, with connections to industry, which is something that is obviously invaluable. And, and because of the depth of expertise that exists here, it is possible to identify top technical talent, in my case, um, in a number of different disciplines and then pull them together. And uh, yes, there were all people who had a lot of experience in their respective industries who, who we've brought together. Yes? How long did it take from when you, I guess, got your funding and you started your company to when you had a deliverable product? Was it really, was it a big struggle? Did you end up with a product you thought you would have? Um, it took a lot longer than I thought, <laughs> and uh, the product. Uh, absolutely. So the question was, how long did it take from the time we got funding to get a working product, and was that product different from what we had originally envisioned? And uh, the answer is, it took far longer than we thought, and the product was. Uh, very different <laughs> than what we had originally envisioned. Um, what was consistent was that it filled the same need in terms of the customer requirement, if you will, or the design specification for what we were trying to do. But actually, getting the technology to one, work, and then two, getting the technology to work in a scalable way is a huge challenge, which um, uh, we definitely did not completely understand going into it, um, but uh, the process of iterating the technology was actually an invaluable thing for us because we ended up discovering and creating new capabilities in figuring out what did not work that ultimately has given us a huge competitive advantage in our ability to do better blood testing than central labs. Um, Yes. What's the backstory to this? Um, how does a Stanford sophomore get interested in doing home health monitoring? Um, for me, I, I knew um, from the time I was really young that I wanted to start a company because I thought that by building a great company, it was the greatest way that I could make an impact with my life. And um, the question that I wanted to answer is ultimately how do we change the phenomena that we recognize as reality today, which is when someone that we care about gets really sick, there's almost nothing that we can do about it because we figure it out too late. 
And if there were some way to change that system, in my mind, that is the most valuable product that you could build. And so that is what I set out to do initially. And in the process of doing it, obviously went through the identification of market opportunities that would enable us to build a business from cash, from operations, and uh, really uh, build a strong foundation so that ultimately in the long term, we could answer that question. Yes? Are there diseases, cancer versus heart disease, that are you, you're most focusing on? And is the disease contingent upon the money the pharmaceutical company has to, to provide, I assume, funds, funds, funds you? I mean, they purchase your expertise. Yeah. It, it does to some extent. Our, our business today is designed around picking a product for a pharmaceutical company and building a system, so customizing what we measure and the analytics that we provide around um, enabling that company to uh, ameliorate a safety concern, for example, or more rapidly than otherwise possible demonstrate efficacy of the drug. That said, part of the beauty of the technology that we've developed is that we can do um, any different combination of chemistries on a single platform, which means we have the ability to invest in building what we call libraries, which are sets of chemistries that we can customize for the disease areas that we're most interested in. And accordingly, we're focusing on the areas where there's a tremendous opportunity in the short term to fundamentally impact um, one, our understanding of disease progression, and two, the standard of care, which for us are in oncology and infection and, uh, and also in cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. Yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> yeah, yes. Can you talk a little bit more about how you evaluate someone in a dis different discipline and, and the recruiting process, specifically across discipline? across disciplines, so you mentioned leveraging the Stanford network, and I just wanted to push a little bit harder and find yeah. out a little bit more. So the, the first piece of the question was, how do we evaluate um, the candidates that, that we interview? And the second piece of the question was um, specifically on the recruiting process that we've, we've undergone in terms of bringing together people from different disciplines. Um, Evaluating candidates is very difficult, and um, in, in my mind, there's two pieces to that. For Theranos, there's a fundamental piece, which is technically people need to be excellent in whatever discipline that we're bringing them in for, um, but that still is only 50%, because you can be technically excellent, but if you don't have the hunger to come in and take ownership of whatever it is that you're building, then it's not going to work, especially in a startup environment where you're trying to do something that's very hard on a very short time frame. So we've taken the philosophy that if every single person in our company owns what they're doing, then even when tough things happen, if we get a group of people who is very smart and is determined that no matter what, we're going to make this company successful and put them around a table, we'll be able to figure out some way to change course and solve any problem that we face. 
And it's that quality, that, that determination, and that ownership, and that hunger that is a huge piece of what we look for, um, because we think it's fundamental, ultimately, to winning. And so um, we're still not as, and I'm still not as good as, as I need to be, and we need to be at going through that process, but, but there are sometimes uh, qualities that you can see that, that represent that when you talk to people. Um, and then it's about finding, in my experience, people that, that you trust who can give you firsthand knowledge and experience on working with someone so that uh, you have as much of a reference as possible in going in. I have not had great success with headhunters, uh, recruiters, but, but we have had great success with the network. And uh, it's about building that network so that you can, you can get candidates who um, are most likely to fit the profile that you're looking for. Yes? Before I came, uh, I checked out your website. Yeah. And found out that board of, one of the board of advisors is Larry Ellison. How do you manage to do that? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, I, the question was, uh, he saw on our website that Larry Ellison is one of our directors. How did we get Larry Ellison as a director? Um, we were fortunate to have Larry Ellison as an investor. And um, I guess uh, what we're doing is interesting and powerful enough that he was interested in, in being on the board. Um, but. Uh, having someone who's gone through the process of building a company as successful as Oracle is, in my mind, uh, very valuable because it means that you're talking to people who've gone through it and know uh, how to, to build the type of company that can ultimately become an industry. Yes? Hi. Uh, can your system or could it measure blood cell count, such as red cells, white cells, hemoglobin, etc.? So the question was, can our system measure uh, cells, such as red cells, white cells, or hemoglobin? And uh, the answer is, it depends. Um, there are some cell surface measurements and also cellular measurements that we can do. Um, but we've geared it mostly toward proteomic analysis. Um, such as? Such as, um, so PSA is a frequently measured protein. CRP is another frequently measured protein. There's thousands of them. And uh, there's commercially available tests for use in central labs, but no one has been able to do this in the point of care in as high a quality way as, uh, as necessary. Yes. Yes. Um, Elizabeth, Tom Kosnick, you heard earlier that Tina Seeling's writing a book, uh, about to launch a book called um, I Wish I Knew Now. Uh, Tina, the, the full title is? What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. At age 19, you founded Theranos in the midst of what we thought was the worst nuclear winter that had hit Silicon Valley. <laughs> Um, if you think about where you are now in 2009, there are a number of young entrepreneurs who are thinking of starting companies in 2009. Any lessons learned, things you wish you knew when you were just starting that you'd like to share with these young entrepreneurs who are kind of pursuing a similar path? Yeah, I was thinking about that before I came in here. It's a tough question. Um, you know, I don't know how to ask you to repeat that, but maybe 
Well, the question was was things that that I I wish I knew when when I started, and um, uh, a very valuable lesson that I've learned, which I thought I knew when I started, but I didn't, was um, the focus on cash flow as a vehicle for managing the business, which. It's one thing to have a really good idea and have customers who are really excited about it, and it's a different thing to exist around cash flow and cash flow from operations. And if you can build a business that is driven by cash from operations, meaning paying customers, driving growth, I think that is the most fundamental uh, piece of having a successful company because it means you have a solid business model and it means that uh, you can build a strong foundation. Um, I guess another piece of it is you have to understand why you're doing it. And for me, when, when I started, it was a really good idea and I was passionate about it. But in the process of, of really doing something like this, you do hit times where you question why is it that you're getting involved with something like this. And um, you know, I certainly went through a period where it became clear to me that if I needed to, um, I would restart this company as many times as possible to make this thing happen. And having that level of conviction makes it not about the money or the people or the title or the role. And I, I really believe that that is necessary to do something like this because if if you're doing it for the title or the money or um, any of these more superficial things, then you may make decisions that alter the course of building the business. And I think anybody who, who starts a company really has to know why it is that, that they're doing it. Uh, yes? Um, how did you come up with the technology innovation behind your products? Did it come from research you did here, or did you develop it after founding the company? Um, it was a, right, the question was, how did we come up with the technology um, that's the foundation of this product? And, and the answer is it was an iterative process. Um, we had ideas, and you try those ideas, and some of them work and some of them don't. And then you figure out what the missing pieces are, and you figure out how to pull those pieces together. Um, fundamentally, it was getting enough people who understood in detail all of the different pieces that we needed to aggregate to be able to do this to, to answer all of those questions. And that was the breadth of technical expertise that was required to really build an integrated solution, um, which, which goes back to people and the people that you have on the problem. Because when invention is required, having, having the right people in the room to distract your brains until you come up with something is the way it gets done. Um, How many people in your company? <coughs> uh, we are just under 70. Yeah. My question is, uh, you, you can easily imagine that this whole, uh, whole uh, business, uh, it's lots of cross-DC plan, uh, ranging from the like, uh, you know, partnership with uh, pharmacies, you know, finding the, uh, you know, run, uh, running the trial, also, the, from technical side, you need to uh, develop the uh, system. So, uh, lots of different things. So, well, 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 my question is, 
how, uh, what, what do you think the most critical part for your whole Venus, uh, you know, whole Venus uh, model? And the second part is how you prioritize all of these pieces. And in terms of technical development, I can see any, any places there will be lots of challenge. How can you overcome this challenge? Or do you do it in-house in or you partner with outside you know, companies? So let me repeat the question and, and tell me if I get it wrong. Um, the question was, uh, there's a number of different components and challenges to, to successfully building a company. And how do you prioritize them? And then specifically within technical development, um, how do you overcome those challenges? Yeah, um, it's difficult to prioritize them for for, and I think every company is different. It depends on on what your business model is. For for us, uh, technology and sales are the two most important things because that's our product and our customers, and and obviously hiring the right team and finding the right people is fundamental to being able to focus on either of those. Um, and that's based on the business model that we have and our goals and what we want to do with, with our company. Um, on the technology side, uh, I do not believe that it's possible to outsource uh, invention when you come up with technology challenges. Um, I strongly believe that that's something that a company has to deal with themselves. Um, and and that, having gone through it, is really a process of having the right people, the right resources, and asking the right questions so that you can figure out ways to achieve whatever your end objective is with respect to what you're building. Um, we uh, clearly went through several innovation cycles in building the system that, that we built, and um, it's the kind of thing where you literally, in my experience, have to go into it saying that you know, we're going to try 100,000 experiments until we figure out how to make this thing work. And even if 99,000 of them fail, we're still going to do this because we're going to figure out some way to make it work. And when you have that level of conviction and, and you force yourself to um, go through as broad a process as possible, and in my experience, it, it is possible to to come up with solutions, even though they may be different than what you were originally thinking about. Yes? You, you talk a lot about finding the right people. What's your success rate when you interview a candidate or you do whatever you do? You're like, oh, this is great. After you see them working and you're measuring performance, like how accurate or how good are you at telling oh, this is really good or they're just sort of gaining the interview? So the question is, um, how good are we at uh, successfully identifying and interviewing candidates in the recruiting process? Um, I'd like to think we get better with time. Um, I, I asked that question of, of a board member of ours once, and he told me that he, he ran a, a company called uh, Pharmacia, which was uh, an organization that ultimately became part of Pfizer. And uh, he said that in his experience, um, if you're really good, you have a 50% success rate, which made me feel great because then I figured, okay, maybe I'm not doing so bad. Um, but I think you know, the real question is, 
you try and you do your best, but then if you bring someone in and it's not right, you have to be able to act on it. And that's the tough piece because it's not personal, but it's about building a great company. And if you can set up a framework so that if you bring someone in and it's not working, you can make that change, then, um, then you'll be okay. Uh, but it's when you have a bunch of people that are not right and you don't get rid of them that you can have big problems. No, <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Um, but uh, I think it, it, you know it's hard to always be right when when you recruit. I, I think you, you know, part of part of my job and my role is when I bring someone in to to help them be successful, um, but uh, and set them up to be successful. But you also have to be able to work with people in such a way in which you can say, okay, within the first ninety days. Here's what we expect, and be able to make that clear in an interviewing process. And then, if those people do not achieve those goals, then then you work with them. And if it's just not the right fit, then it's not the right fit. Yes. So, dropping out of Stanford when you're 19 and a sophomore, that seems kind of cool and scary at the same time. <coughs> what were you going through? Um, can you give us like some kind of concrete details how far you were along in your company, and just like what advice you got from? So the question was, what was the process of dropping out of Stanford when I was 19 like, and, uh, and what kind of advice did I get? Um, interestingly, it was a fairly binary decision. Um, I got to a point where I, I actually originally did not intend to drop out of Stanford, but I wasn't going to any classes and I was spending all of my time talking to VCs. And so then logistically it just seemed like a waste of money because I was, you know, taking 20 units and I wasn't showing up. So, um, so, so originally the concept was, well, uh, take a, a leave of absence. And then I, it became really clear that, you know, I, I was at a point where another few classes in chemical engineering was not necessary for what I wanted to do. And so, um, so then I just made a decision that I was going to figure out how to make it work. And, uh, and that was it. And I, I actually left. I, I, I ended up living in the basement of a bunch of, of Stanford grads and started working from the basement of their house. And uh, and then finally convinced someone to, to give us, originally it was a bridge loan, and uh, then you know, went through the process of, of starting to build the company. Um, yes? I think there are probably a lot of people in this room who have ideas, and what they're really going through at the moment is working through the nuts and bolts of how do you go from the idea to the point where you're actually talking to the venture community. Because it sounds like I'm still struggling with you know, where you were with the technology once you went out and actually started talking to people. If it was an iterative process, it almost sounds like you were doing a lot of R&D on venture, venture money, which is kind of unusual, I think. I think most of the time, they, they like to see some proof of concept in the technology before they move forward. So it sounds a little unusual, but I think from this audience's perspective, it's that nuts and bolts piece of how do I, you know, I've got this idea, what's the next step? 
So, so the question was, there's, there's likely a lot of people listening to this who are thinking about starting companies or raising money. And um, what, was, what was our experience in going through the funding process, um, raising, uh, raising money, and where were we with, it, with the technology when we did that? And, and, and what would we share about that? I'm, I don't believe there's a formula for that. I, I think every example is, is different. In our case, we had um, enough to be able to know that it could work. And we needed to go build it and prove it. And we needed capital to do that, which is why we started raising money. Um, I think that. Um, you know, if, if people believe that they have enough of a solid foundation on an idea or a design or a business model that they are going to be able to implement it with capital, then it's a good time to start talking to venture capitalists to figure out um, you know, how to get the sources, or maybe it's angel investors to, to be able to do that. What did you have when you walked in there? Did you have a, you know, a, a, a ten, 10 slide presentation of this kind of idea, or what? What exactly did you have uh, in your in your case? In my case, I had ideas and patent applications and people and conviction, and uh, that was about it. Um, we we had. We knew what we would do, and I knew what we would do if we were able to get the funding to begin building and developing this. Um, because we were building something that had never existed before, it was very difficult to say, this is how we will know when it works, because there's so much that you cannot anticipate in the process of going from, okay, I got something that's sitting on a bench and it works, and in reality that means nothing, because it needs to work simultaneously in China and Eastern Europe and South America, and going from the process of a thing sitting on a bench to the process of shipping these things internationally and having a standardized platform that works is, is a totally different ballgame. We didn't completely understand that <laughs> until, we, until we went through it. Um, but, but from a technical standpoint, we had, we had designs and, and components, basically, when, when we started. And a patent application, yeah. 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 Yes? So as a 19-year-old, how did you, I'm guessing that this is your first company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd, I think the reason that I got into Stanford is because I'd, I'd started another one when I was in high school, um, but it wasn't anything like this. So my question was, that as a 19-year-old, how do you go about convincing all these people that you really know what you're doing? <laughs> and you could put it um, It's a good question. The, the question was, as a 19-year-old, how do you go about the process of convincing people that you know what you're doing and uh, that you can pull it off? Um, I think the first piece is realizing that it's not necessarily about age. And um, people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and the Google guys and Michael Dell and Larry Ellison and others have, have demonstrated that. Um, I think it's about, um, it's about technology. It's about people. It's about 
the the conviction and dedication that that an entrepreneur has in going into it to make something work no matter what and um, uh, then it's about finding people who believe in you because the worst possible thing in the world is to have someone who doesn't believe in you backing you because that's not going to result in a good situation um, and uh, I mean, the first time that, that I went through the process of raising money, I assumed that I was going to have to talk to at least 200 people before I found one who was going to believe in me. So I didn't really care if people were turning me down because I knew I would find someone who did. Um, How do you make people believe in you? How do you make people believe in you? Um, you know, I think you have to believe in yourself. And I think you have to have the conviction in yourself to be able to make something happen because ultimately it's up to you and um, when you have that level of conviction you'll find the people or the resources or the tools uh, that you need to make it happen it it may take a lot longer than you think but it's about keeping that conviction in yourself um, yes um, you mentioned early on that you were focusing on the clinical trials as an application. Um, one of the things with clinical trials is they're gradually moving more overseas and there are a lot of cost pressures on them. Can you talk about how you uh, fit into that, whether you were trying to make a trade-off between cost and performance for the pharmaceutical companies or whether you had a, a better cost model um, and how you priced it or thought about uh, including those in the trials? So the question was about cost and clinical trials and the trade-off between cost and, and efficiency, if you will, in, in clinical studies. Um, for Theranos, the sheer fact that our technology exists obsoletes a tremendous amount of infrastructure that is currently required to get the same data, yet the data that's generated using the centralized and conventional infrastructure is not as good as the data we can generate uh, with a point-of-care box. So the sheer logistics of having to ship a sample, for example, rather than poke your finger, wipe out a tremendous amount of cost in uh, the process of running a study. But as we all know, what's more valuable than the logistics is time. And if you can reduce the amount of time that is required to run a clinical study and accelerate approval, that's, that's very valuable um, in the context of drug development. And by being able to get better data, we can begin to get better insight into the pathway dynamics, which results in better and faster decision making, um, starting with the fact that we get a value in real time that today could take maybe three weeks using a conventional infrastructure to get, but going through to the fact that the data that we get from our machines is actually higher in quality than the data that you'd get using a central lab, which means it's more meaningful and more predictive of response, which then results in accelerating a trial time frame. And, and that's the real value proposition because um, earlier decision-making changes the economics of a study. Yes. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, the role that advisors and mentors played in the process by which you started the round? Yes. Uh, the question was, can I talk about the role that advisors and mentors played in the process of, of starting Theranos? I'm, 
I think there is nothing more valuable than having great advisors and mentors. I have two of them in the room right now, uh, one sitting behind you and, and the other sitting in the back. Um, it it uh, is um, having someone who can brainstorm with you, who can coach you, and who really knows what they're talking about when they talk about what it takes to do whatever it is that you're trying to do. I mean, in our case, we're trying to build a company that you know, will be in industry 5, 10, 20 years from now. So finding people who've been through that, um, I think, is invaluable because it gives you someone to talk to and to hopefully as much as possible learn the mistakes that you don't want to make. Uh, and, uh, and also um, think through the right way to set it up, leveraging as much knowledge as exists on how to do it right. So surrounding yourself with those people is, is absolutely fundamental. Um, yes? So can you tell us the story of how Theranos got started? Like, tell us like, um, how you got the idea, how you started working on it, maybe like, who you got interested in, who you got to come join in. So the question is, what is the story of how Theranos got started? Um, well, I was... I'll give you the long answer. Um, I grew up learning Mandarin, and so I actually ended up spending a large amount of time in China before I uh, went to Stanford. And, and then when I came to Stanford, I, I wanted to go to Singapore because of the focus on biomedical research and did that. And um, in the process of going to Singapore, I got a job which threw me into a uh, a lab doing microarray re research, um, which I was definitely not qualified for because I had no understanding of biology. And um, the, uh, that basically led to a decision-making process, which was either I'm going to learn this stuff right now or I'm probably going to lose my job. So I need to figure it out. And in attempting to learn a massive amount of biology in a very short period of time, and in the process, at, at that time, we were developing novel protein microarrays for SARS detection. Um, the, the question was, you know, looking at the technologies that people were, were using to do detection of these analytes and having the experience at Stanford uh, working in microfluidics, it made absolutely no sense that people were using the kind of tools that they were using to do this analysis because of the technologies that existed that could completely change the way in which you got high integrity information. And, and so then I started thinking about a better way to do it. And that in combination with, with this question of, of how do you characterize disease progression? Because if you can characterize that, you can figure out what disease regression looks like. Um, led to the concept of, of building a, an integrated system that would, would allow you to do those things. And, and it was an integration of the exposure that I got to massive laboratory systems with, with the technology that I'd seen here from begging to be in, in the labs of uh, <laughs> professors who were doing experiments with, with, uh, with PhDs that, that I got to work with at Stanford. And, um, and, and then when I got to a point where it really seemed like 
you know, I, I had an idea that would work. Then it was about um, going through the, the mental process of uh, do, do I really go do this or not? And, um, you know, that was not a long thought process for me because, you know, when I would work on this, I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And so um, it didn't take very long for, for me to decide that this is what I wanted to go do. Um, yes? So I'm in the process of creating an ethical bank to help um, social entrepreneurs. I'm also in the show development. How did you use banks, or how do you wish you could have used a bank that understood the social impact that you were going to make? Um, did they understand it? What was your experience with banks? And if, if you could have you know, been the banker on the other side, what should they have thought about you? So, so the question was, how did we use banks? How would we have liked to have used banks? And what was the, um, what we would have liked to have them understood as we went through our interactions with them? Um, we didn't use banks at all. And uh, we would have loved to. But uh, this is, I mean, it was constantly a, a question of um, uh, what kind of terms we could get. And the terms didn't make sense in the context of um, either raising equity capital or going out and getting customer contracts. Um, it certainly would have been valuable to be able to work with a bank who truly could have helped us, you know, be it through equipment leasing or, or something else. But every time that you go through that, or at least that we went through that term sheet negotiation process, it may be different now. Um, we. Uh, we would get to a point where you know, you'd get into a situation where if you ever really needed the money, there were so many covenants around it that you wouldn't actually be able to use it. So that didn't make any sense because the only reason in my mind that we would have that available is in case we ever really needed it. And uh, so it didn't happen. Maybe it will. <laughs> I don't know. It'll be different now because now you have receivables and everything else. Yes. Um, I was I was sort of curious if, if you could walk us through like um, how you built your, your the first how you recruited the first ten people on your team. Like at what stage of funding did you get how many people how many people did you start with your bridge loan and get your seed money or Series A and stuff? So the question was um, walking through the process of the first people that that we got involved with our company. Um, I had a few people. Um, starting out, it was three who were working for nothing um, originally. And um, those are people that, that I knew from Stanford. Um, one was the person that I worked for in a lab here. And uh, the other was someone who we'd met um, through the nanofabrication facility who was a visiting person from IBM. And uh, they were excited about the idea and wanted to help. And uh, one of them had a basement where we could build things. And so uh, we started working. Um, when we actually got funding, um, we stayed at about five people for the first six months. And those were 
technology people who could actually get into the lab and, and run experiments, and, and they were all associated with Stanford. Um, but then you go through a process of needing different types of people for the different phases that you go through as you build the company, and, and that changes. I mean, in the beginning, you need idea people, and so we were able to find those and bring them together. Then you had a phase where you need people to execute, and uh, in our experience, those are two different types of people. So you need to go find the people who can execute, and uh, in some cases, you have to replace some of the original people, um, just based on the constraints that you have in, in building the business. And, um, and we certainly went through that process. Original founding members, the three that you started with, still working with you? Um, one is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes? If you could go back in time, you're 19 again, you're a sophomore, what would be the different things that you would do this time around? Uh, and more importantly, would you drop out again? Yes, I would drop out again. Um, <laughs> the, the other piece of the question was, what, what would I do differently um, if I went back in time? Um, I, I would have taken a different approach to the people that we brought in. And um, there was a lot of things that I didn't know when I started that, that I had to learn the hard way. Um, and. Uh, I'm not sure if there would have been a way to change that if I started when I was 19 again, but um, you know, uh, finding the people who really know what they're talking about is, in my mind, fundamental to, to being able to succeed. And um, you know, we went through a process of, of trying to find those people, which took longer than I would have liked. Um, but. Uh, but that's something that if I could do it differently, I definitely would have. Um, I'm still not sure exactly how I would have done that differently. Um, yes? Who was with you when you first met with venture capitalists? What were their backgrounds? Uh, the question was, who was with me when I first met with venture capitalists and what were their backgrounds? Um, it depended. Um, Sometimes I would meet by myself. Um, sometimes I would surround myself by people who uh, had industry experience. Um, we did get uh, Channing Robertson to come with us to some of those meetings. Um, it depended on who the meeting was with. And um, I, was, I, I didn't have a co-founder, so I was in a situation where I was doing the presenting myself. Um, but it, it depended on what kind of leverage I thought I needed in going into those meetings. Um, Did you notice a pattern in terms of uh, whether it went better when you were on your own or when someone else came along? No. The question was, did I notice a, a pattern of whether it went better when I was on my own or when someone else came along? I don't think so. Um, I think it's about the value proposition. If you're talking to the right people, it's about the value proposition. If you're talking to the wrong people, then yeah, maybe there is a difference. <laughs> yes? What is your ultimate vision for the role that the system will play in healthcare? For example, do you see it being integrated as a standard part of primary care or more in hospitals to manage treatments? 
So the question is, what, what is my vision for the role that, that Theranos systems will play in healthcare? Um, ultimately, we, we do see what we do as a standard of care, and we see it as a vehicle for being un able to understand far earlier the onset of diseases and uh, enabling interventions far earlier than possible today. We also see it as a vehicle for figuring out which drugs to prescribe when and how to understand if they're safe and if they're uh, working in the way in which you want them to work. And, and that's part of working with, with managed care and uh, healthcare providers to, to get it adopted as a standard of care. Um, yes? Oh, um, so uh, your VCs, what kind of timeline do they give you for seeing a return on their investment? Do you meet those timelines? Or? The question was, what kind of timeline did our VCs give us for seeing a return on their investment, and did we meet those timelines? Um, I'm not, fortunately I didn't have investors who gave me a specific date through which we needed to have a liquidity event. Um, I think if they had, uh, it would not have turned out well because I think it's very difficult, especially if you're, if you're going into a venture where you have to invent and you have to, you know, I mean, in our case, we created a new business model um, to be able to pick a day on which you're going to be there, quote unquote. Um, I do know that you know, this, this focus on building a business from cash from operations and getting to a point where you have a solid business model, a solid pricing structure, and a solid revenue stream is, is really fundamental because then you have the foundation in place to be able to provide returns to your investors. And in my mind, if you have the right investors, then they're going to be excited about that rather than, you know, are you going to get acquired on this day and for 10x my money, um, which, which is not, in my mind, the type of investor that you'd want to have. Um. Go ahead and make this the last question. Yeah, so um, the question is, basically, you said you patented your application. Yes. When you did that, were you by yourself uh, patenting the application, or you had a team? So the first one that I did, I was by myself. Uh, this is a question on the patent. Uh, when, I, when I filed my first application, was I by myself? And yes, it was. Did, did I use a lawyer? Um, I did use a lawyer. I used a lawyer to file the application. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was a short one, so maybe we do have time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 okay. I'm really curious. Um, why you? Why is you who uh, put everything together? Um, you said really? uh, <laughs> what? I mean, why not other people? Because um, what thing? What's the most important thing? If you think, you know, make the whole thing happen. Uh, you in the very beginning you said you have uh, a passion. You have some people around you, so you make the whole, you just talk with VCs, talk with different people, make them trust you. So, but still, I, I'm still curious, what really, what really makes the difference? Why is you? So the question is, uh, why me? <laughs> I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, you know. Um, you know, I'm, it's it, a lot of people say it, but um, 
If you make a decision that you are going to make something work and you commit yourself no matter what to figuring out how to do that um, and you are absolutely not bothered by failure and making mistakes in the process of doing it, uh, people can do a lot of things and for me this is this is what I wanted to do with my life. This is you know when I'm doing it, I feel like I'm I'm doing what I'm born to do. And uh, when you have that kind of conviction, then you do whatever it takes to to build value. And I I think you know that's that's helped me a lot in in getting to to where we are now. listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.